Now, do you know much about hoverflies? Well, you should. Karen Nordstrom does. Your name is redolent of a different place. Sweden? Yes, I'm from Sweden, so I've been here since 2015. Quite recently, so you're well adjusted. <laughs> yeah, I'd hope so. <laughs> Getting used to this winter storms. <laughs> did you do your studies first in Sweden? Yes, I did my undergraduate in Sweden, and then I did my PhD. I started it in Sweden, but I got the opportunity to go to Australia as an exchange student for a year. As uh, so I went to Townsville and studied jellyfish. So a whole year in Townsville, which is an interesting place. And during that time, I met my now husband. And you've been here studying these hoverflies. Now, do people generally recognise a hoverfly as being close to a bee? Yeah, so most people listening today would probably have seen a hoverfly, but you would have thought that you saw a honeybee or a wasp. So they look just like honeybees and wasps with this brightly striped abdomen. Why do you choose those instead of the aforementioned rather more common, I would have thought, to bees and wasps? So the reason I chose hoverflies is that they have really amazing vision. They have huge eyes and they use their visual system for a range of behaviours. And I was interested in understanding the neural coding of vision. So I thought it was smart to choose an animal that uses vision a lot. The neural coding. So you go inside the nervous system of this tiny fly to find out how it programs its own vision. Yeah, that's pretty much what I do. How on earth do you do that? <laughs> so we cut a small hole over the brain and put electrodes into the brain, put the fly in front of a screen where they watch videos. Uh, so they're watching a movie while we're recording what the brain is doing. And then we try to make sense of that. What's in the movie? Uh, it could be other flies, it could be parks, it could be scenery that they would have experienced when they were flying around. <laughs> How do they respond? What turns them on most? <laughs> so hoverflies are very, very territorial. So when they see other flies, they get very excited. And we see them out in nature, they would chase away another fly or court it for mating. They're not particularly social, in other words. They're, they're loners, and if they see another fly, it's competition. Yeah, that's mostly right. Very territorial. They want to hang out in their own little territory. If another hoverfly enters, they try to chase it away. Have you ever played them something in a movie and been surprised by the fact that they've recognised what's there, which is remote from their experience? When we show movies to them, it can be something as simple as just a black dot on a white screen, but they still respond as if that would be another hoverfly. So. You don't show them a picture of a goanna or something like that? <laughs> I haven't tried that. <laughs> something I should do. <laughs> so when they've got this sort of vision, it's obviously tremendously important, as in bees, to enable them to navigate and find out where they are. Because if they're territorial, they've got to know what their territory looks like. Yeah, that's right. So they need to be able to return to their territory after they chase another hoverfly away, if it's going to be a successful <laughs> territorial guarding. So yeah, so they probably use some kind of memory snapshot or it's something that makes that particular spot very attractive. There's a puzzle that we once broadcast in the science show about bees when you've got their hive and they've gone off to look for flowers or whatever and they come back and you've moved it by a couple of metres. They go to where the hive was rather than saying, oh, that, it's over there now, let's go into the hive where we live. 
Why do they do that? That's quite strange. Yeah, so that's very popular type of experiments done by bee researchers and ant researchers. It's quite evil, actually. It's like, <laughs> so as if you come home and, you know, all of a sudden your house has moved 100 metres down the street. Uh, so what they do is that they actually have landmarks that they recognise. So they follow the landmarks more than just the vision of the beehive. I think the analogy would be if you in the UK, for example, where you have townhouses that look very similar, every door would look the same. So you use kind of a snapshot of, I want a tree on the left, I want the street sign on the right, and then I know this is my door. So it would be the same analogy as if your house would all of a sudden have shifted a few doors down, you would also have trouble finding it. Whereas the landmarks don't change. That's the idea, but we can do experiments where we move the landmarks, so for example, in a virtual reality arena, or what experimenters do is that they place, for example, a post, and then they move the post and then they follow the landmarks. So very elegant experiments done in bees and ants. How do you apply it to the rest of the animal kingdom, not least us? So some of us do landmark orientation, and some of us are very good at it. We store little snapshots. Uh, so for example, if you're driving somewhere where you've never been before, you have to either follow a map or listen to Google Maps to be able to do that. But after a while, you remember that, okay, I drive past that shopping center, and then it's that roundabout, and then it's this. And we do exactly the same kind of thing with landmarks, like sequential landmarks to navigate. So there is a parallel. What have you learned so far about the ways in which these little creatures' brains work? So what I'm amazed about is how an animal with such a small brain and such a small nervous system is still able to outperform us in many respects. So they're faster than us and they can happily navigate in novel environments that where they've never been, where we would feel a bit overwhelmed because it's something new. So. I suppose you have to be quick, otherwise you get eaten. That's true. You have to be very quick, yes, because they have a lot of predators. <laughs> so. How quick? So they're about at least 10 times faster than us. So for a sprinter, if they leave their starting blocks earlier than 400 milliseconds after the sound of the starting gun, that's considered cheating. But a fly will respond within 20 to 30 milliseconds. So they're about 10 times faster from a sensory input to a motor output. So they're incredibly fast, very efficient. Can you compare that with some birds? Because they are supposed to be incredibly quick because they're flying at a tremendous rate and you don't want to bump into trees and branches and all, all sorts of things like that. And somehow, if you follow them, looking at where they're going, it's quite incredible. And if you imagine a movie slowed down so you've got more time somehow, is that more or less right? Yeah, so that's what I usually do when I want to illustrate this for students is to show a movie slowed down. It's a very good analogy because they have time to see movement that we completely miss because our vision is quite slow. So you're right, birds have a lot faster vision than us. They, their photoreceptors are fast. Are they fast as the hoverflies? Not the photoreceptors themselves, but they're getting closer. But then it's not just the photoreceptors, like the vision that needs to be fast. It's also the transformation from what comes in to the body doing something. Their flies outperform birds. Indeed. Well, of course, the puzzle we've mentioned many, many times. I won't tell you about cricket because you come from Sweden. However, if you are imagining tennis and the ball is coming towards you and you've got far less than a second, and yet the secretion of the chemicals in the nervous system 
and even to some extent the electrical transmission can't be that quick, surely. So how on earth do you get there to the ball in time and respond in time to match what's required? Yeah, so that's something that good sports people do and insects that chase things do. So they predict, so for example, a cricket player or a tennis player, they predict where is the ball going to be by the time I can get there. So they move to the future position of the ball instead of its current position. So everyone who's good at sports, like tennis or cricket or any sport, they are extremely good at this, at going to where the ball will be in the future. And the same with insects that chase things. They do exactly the same, that they have a predictive coding, that they work out where it's likely to be in the future and go to the future position. And that's the only way you can do it as a good sports person. You can't go to its current position. You're not fast enough, like you said. Yeah, well, you have to be pretty quick when you're driving a motor car, for example. And it's got to be less than a second, again, for human beings to respond, even though we're terribly languid by comparison. How do we do that? Yeah, so we respond in a few hundred milliseconds, which is fast. So faster, like it feels like a blink of an eye for us. So we, we can respond really quickly when we have to, but it's still a few hundred milliseconds before we are physically able to do something. A final question about how you do this work. Now, there is your hoverfly and you've, okay, you've set up the movie. You want to show it and you've got, as you said, some sort of electrode <laughs> in its nerve. How do you put it into a nerve in the brain and get that kind of facility with something so tiny technologically? I always liken it to a trade. So it takes time to learn to do it. People who start in my lab, it takes a few months for them to become good at it. But once you're good at it, it's just like a trade. It sits in your fingers. You're, you're, you just have this really body knowledge of how to do it. So we put the electrodes. It's a very fine electrode. The tip is smaller than the, the width of your hair. And we put that on something called a micromanipulator, where our movements are scaled down massively. So we turn a little knob, but that's, that movement is just scaled down. And then we use that micromanipulator, similar to what neurosurgeons would do, to really fine-tune exactly where the electrode would go. And then we're able to put it into single neurons, which is amazing. It's amazing. It's, and it's, it still gives me a kick <laughs> hearing the sound. of. So we have speakers attached to it so we can listen to the sound. So we can hear the sound of the neuron firing. And every time I hear that sound, it's, it brings joy. <laughs> <laughs> ah, joy. And where next in your joy quest? Uh, so what we're really interested in understanding is how they decide what behavior to choose when there's conflicting input. So imagine you're chasing a cricket ball, but then there's uh, a plane crashing next to you. You obviously avoid the plane crashing instead of chasing the ball. But sometimes it's harder to make these choices. And as parents, you know, for example, if there's an object coming towards you, you think of saving your child before you start saving yourself. But if you're there alone, you jump out of the way. So how we make these choices before we're even consciously aware of them, and then we think flies are an excellent model for doing that. An excellent model. Karen Nordstrom is Professor of Neuroscience at Flinders University in Adelaide.